Today is November 4th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Hoki Naganago Mekoche Chestokomaki. Hi, my name is Red Thunderwoman. My English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations of the Stony uh, Nations, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nations, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been kind to me on my Red Road journey. Uh, Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Malkinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower. I'm a daughter of the American Revolution, and I have an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene, Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Klinchotine Indahe in Satu, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Uh, land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as the guest and acknowledging my role and your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. Because apparently my life and issues and content are triggering, if you are experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for a Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. For more related to missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two-spirit, for immediate emotional assistance, call 1-844-413-6649. This is a national toll-free 24-hour-7 crisis uh, support lines providing support for anyone who requires emotional assistance relating to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. Non-Indigenous, there are functioning distress centers in your area as well as many functioning 211s. And you can also try calling 24-7, toll-free, 1-833-456-4566. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge in support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest broadcasts and pin posts on social media. So today's a really special day because I really um, have finally able to connect um, with my friend here that we have. Okay, now we're on full screen. I can see you well. Would you like to introduce yourself? 
Sure, absolutely. So my name is Bri Robertson. Um, I am Inuk, more specifically, I am Inugalwit. Um, my family is from Politak, which is one of six communities in the Inuvialuit Settlement Region. Um, I was born in Hay River Northwest Territories. I was raised in Fort Smith Northwest Territories. Uh, I currently reside uh, in Mokinsis, Treaty 7 Territory. I'm a visitor here. Um, I love it. I will all, always honor these lands. Um, I have done most of my healing here in uh, Mokinsis, which is why I respect it so much. I am currently a student at Mount Royal University. I just graduated with a child studies degree, majoring in early learning and child care, which kind of led me to my social work degree, which I'm, I'm um, enrolled in now. Um, I'm always a student first. My studies always come before anything else. I take great pride in, in my work that I do at school, but on the side, I do run my own business. I bead and I sew. Um, I, bead earrings and since the pandemic started I started sewing masks and just recently learned how to sew moccasins so that's been a, a pretty great journey in and of itself and my Inuk name is Ivik which uh, is from my mom it's a namesake and so in you would have naming traditions and um, I actually just learned about my name I think 10 maybe about 12 months ago now so it's been a great journey and I'm still learning about it and its origins and what it means and stuff so that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think a lot of people, like I try to share, um, you, you post like really great pictures of your work, whether it's your mass or your beading. So I love to share them. So I know, uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to follow your business and we'll definitely put a link for folks who, who might not know. So I'm really excited to have you with us. So you were talking about Northwest Territories and you're talking about Politech. You know, my, my <laughs> uncle who's passed, he, he did go to Fort Providence uh, Indian Residential School and he had crashed um, uh, Skidoo in the side of the RCMP um, detachment there, had to be airlifted to Edmonton. That's not what killed him. He was totally fine after that. But um, yeah, that was kind of a funny, I, I've always wanted to go to Politech and see the RCMP barrack just for that reason. So. <laughs> I think anybody that's grown up in the Northwest Territories has had a, a, an experience with crashing the skidoo. So the first time I ever crashed a skidoo um, was in Fort Smith and we were driving it in the, in the playground of the elementary school. Like skidoos, they're normal. You just drive them through town, right? It's just, it's a normal thing. You don't need to be on skidoo trail. So there was a bunch of us driving a little small skidoo and I crashed into a pole in the in the elementary school playground and to this day since the last time i was there that pole is still crooked so. <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah that sounds that sounds right um a long time ago uh so i i was born here in calgary i moved to fort mcmurray and then we went to sylvan lake and when we lived in sylvan lake it wasn't a big town yet it was like still two thousand people and we used to um, have skidoos always kind of going around because uh, the lake was frozen and then people would come and get their gas and go back onto the lake. So it, it used to be kind of normal, but now things are different. And I was telling my daughter, yeah, I remember when the first traffic light went into Sylvan Lake. She's like, oh my God, mom, you're so old. The dinosaurs were still around, right? So <laughs> it still has no, no traffic traffic lights and there's just one um major four-way so still a small little town <laughs> yeah i think one of my cousins lives there and, and started a family uh, the, uh so my my family from Yellowknife and and that area is the palace family i want to say which one of my cousins live there not gabe 
Um, I have another cousin that lives there, I think. So I can't remember his name offhand, but yeah, he's like my direct cousin. Not like uh, you're my cousin because you're in yeah a nook, but like yeah. my cousin cousin. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so I'm really happy to have you on. Um, you know, when we're online and we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Insta, and you see some of the stories that come out, that's part of the reason why I started this podcast was just to kind of start like talking about that mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, the mainstream media, they have their narrative that they push and it's yeah. usually at our expense. Oh, and course. Yeah, and they never really talk to us. They talk about us, but they never talk really with us. So for me, having this podcast was really a great, um, you know, moment to have a conversation with people that I really want to get to know. And I, I want to, you know, lift and encourage. Because if you're, you know, you're at Mount Royal, then you're busy. Because I've, you know, like it's, <laughs> yeah. it's 24 seven. So every second that I can get with somebody when they're not in school and, you know, not beating and not doing all of the great work that you do. Like, I hope you know how much I appreciate you being on my show. I do. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. So. Yeah. So what got you started beating? Was that something you learned when you were a child or is that something you just recently learned? Um, okay. So I, I definitely beaded when I was a child, I would watch my mom beat. So my mom is a perfectionist with everything that she, she does. Um, she would sew, she would bead, every winter me and my two older sisters i'm the baby she would make us brand new parkas every winter we would go to school brand new parkas nice fur around the hood and unfortunately i think about grade four or five i started to get too cool for the park and i didn't want them anymore and i think like as i'm older that's like one of my biggest regrets like how could i have done that they're so beautiful but you know how it is when you're a kid yeah and so i watched my mom be moccasins gun cases make us parkas i think the the thing that stuck out to me the most was definitely the the gun case it was so beautiful she was beating it for my dad and so i would beat alongside her but i would never do the like the flat beating i would just like beat necklaces or beat on a loom and about three years ago now after seeing all the beautiful beading on on twitter and following so many beading accounts i was like mom sit down with me and teach me how to beat my mom she's a little bit impatient so to get her to like sit down with me and like be patient with me is a lot but she did and so I just kind of kept going from there and how I started sewing masks was um the pandemic I was watching the news and there were people sewing um scrub bags for nurses and my older sister is a nurse at the the Rocky View and I was like oh that's so neat so to, to sew a scrub bag and then the nurses can just put their scrubs in the bag and throw the whole thing in the wash. So I was like, mom, teach me how to work a sewing machine. She was staying with me at the time. And she's like, yeah, no problem. So I started making scrub bags and then kind of started sewing masks and it went from there. And then just over the Christmas holidays, I was like, mom, sit down with me. I have all the material, teach me how to make moccasins. And so. Oh, I should have brought my moccasins down here. I don't have them, but yeah, I got mine. Um, I actually commissioned them in yellow knife and they have like the rabbit skin around them and that because that, those are my people, the hair people. Apparently we used to always show up in rabbit skin. So that was kind of like the impetus of wanting to have them. And my granny used to make uh, moccasins all the time for us. But then when my parents split up, it was just such a nasty divorce, right? So it was the worst. And um I, I was taught a lot of like inner hate. So 
um, I had to really unpack that more so in the last since I was about 30. So my daughter, I, I had her when she when I was 30. And that was when I experienced racism in the hospital at the Peter Lahey. So I was like, oh, this is great. So then I, I've been unpacking racism ever since. And, um, you know, trying to navigate this world of trying to figure out because before I thought it was just hate towards women. So I did a lot of like feminist, um, you know, um, readings and such in my 20s as I was going through counseling and, mm -hmm. and starting to unpack the male toxicity of Alberta. <laughs> I had no idea. And what do you mean that's not normal? <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's what, what got me here, but I've never learned how to bead. Um, it, it's been on my road of advocacy. Oh, I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> but I can see I'm never doing that. So what I usually do is I go to, um, you know, different places and I, I see people like yourself and I buy all of these beautiful earrings. These ones were gifted to me. I was really lucky. But, uh, you know, I usually just buy them because yeah. uh, and people will give me the supplies and they just sit in the corner, you know, waiting to be sewn. And that doesn't seem right. So I think it's a, a great skill. And I, for you to be able to sell it, I mean, that's amazing. Do you, do you find that there's a lot of opportunities here in Calgary for you to be a vendor? Um, I've gotten to where I would open the application, semi fill it out, and then never really submit it. Not because I don't want to, not because I don't feel welcome, just because I never have enough. I feel like I never have enough um, supply to actually boast it in, in a vendor again, like I was like, I'm a student first. And so everything has to come after that. Um, so I mean, I feel like there is a lot they have the um, authentically indigenous, which is a great place for vendors to, to sell their, their art. I just never have enough, I think, to, to go and sit there. And so yeah. I mean, eventually, I will do it. You yeah. know, if I, I always say like, well, sometimes I'm like, geez, if I could just like, pay my bills off my beading and my sewing, maybe I would just do that. But then I think but then I'd be wasting my lived experience and not helping people. So yeah. it's like struggle, I guess. That's awesome. Well, what are some of your favorite things that you like to do outside of school? I guess it's hard right now because school is like the main focus. Hey, yeah. And, and yeah. what's actually, let's talk about school. Let's talk about what school has been like um, with the pandemic. <sighs> okay. So it's been like, okay. So like I said, I, I graduated with a child studies degree. So I was at Mount Royal for five years, um, I did two semesters of open studies before I realized what I wanted to do. And then I went into the child studies degree and, and I really enjoy Mount Royal. I enjoy the atmosphere. Um, I feel welcome there. It's, it, I mean, I really, I enjoyed it so much. I went into another, in, like another program, but I've been, this is the second semester of online school. And I'm unfortunately at a point where if we're doing school online again come September, I think I'm going to take a break. I'm just not getting what I want to be able to get out of it. It's so different sitting on a screen and, and trying to have those engaging conversations where then were if you were in a classroom. And so I just feel like I'm not getting as much as I would like to or as much as I know I can get out of it because I've been in the classroom. Mount Royal is really great. We have small classrooms. So by the end of a semester, you know the names of your classmates and stuff. You're not sitting in a class with 400 people, but you can really have engaging conversations. And I just feel like that's lacking online school. So it has been a struggle. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, what's it like being a nook in Calgary? Because this is Blackfoot territory. 
and you're like my people are from way up north your people are from way up north i at least have like an uncle down here with some cousins uh what's it like for you um well i mean i can't say it's hard i i mean there's not very many other Inuit that i've met i've met one other inuk at at mru and we actually met through twitter so somebody was like oh another inuk at mount royal and we met and ate muktuk together and like <laughs> know each other right and so there isn't a very big Inuit community. I, I am lucky. My sister lives here with my niece and nephew. Um, my daughter was here pretty much the whole time I, I've been here, except she just moved to Vancouver to go to school. So I, I mean, I have family here. I, I don't, there's not a very big Inuit community here that I'm aware of. Uh, last summer, we were supposed to do like a, a Inuit tent for Aboriginal Awareness Week with the um, Aboriginal Awareness um, center. There was about six of us that would meet on a regular basis and we were planning things to share Inuit culture and to have a tent and to, to do things and then the pandemic happened so that didn't get to happen. We did we did a couple things online. Um, I talked about Arctic sports because I used to do Inuit games like one foot high kick, two foot high kick, the Alaskan high kick. I went to Arctic Winter Games a couple times for them. So I talked a little bit about that. My mom was nice enough to talk um, and do like a, a welcoming but I mean, I can't say it's hard. Every time I talk to anybody and I tell them I'm in it, they're like, oh, we love Inuit. You know, it's great. Um, so I, I don't feel like I've had I've had it any. Oh, like good. It. No, it's just the worst when you're like away from home and you, you miss those certain things, right? That we just don't have here in Calgary. Um, we have a, an elder here from uh, up north from where our people are from. And uh, he's into hand games. And the pandemic happened and my daughter she wants to get more into hand games so we're hoping to do kind of more of that stuff as well but it's just so hard because you can't do anything right now so yeah. i'm hoping that things will open up well i'm assuming in a year maybe things will start <laughs> opening up yeah it just sucks Hopefully. with the vaccine and now there's this new variant right so yeah, yeah and i believe in science so I don't really understand why people are okay with the status quo that we currently have with how we're half open here and kids can go here and it just nothing makes sense of what they're doing so yeah yeah me too and that's where like i'm like children can go to school but universities are not and we're adults so we we would be better equipped to um social distance and wear masks and like not to i so Mount Royal, so we're paying the same tuition, right? As university students, we are not getting a tuition break whatsoever. And we are not getting the same amount of education or the same. And so, and Mount Royal had their mind made up in like June. In June, we got an email saying it's going to be online. And a lot of other places kind of waited a little longer to see if things were going to change or to see where things are at. So, and you know, there's been cuts with universities. And so like, I could be overthinking it maybe, but I'm like, was it a way to like save money since they knew early on? And like, why can't they give us a little bit of a break with the tuition because we're not getting the same education, but it's just not that way. So yeah, it's been a little, you know. Yeah, that's tough. No, I, I have the deepest respect for anyone being a student in university. Um, you know, I all I do is discuss racism on this um, podcast. and. You know, I get a lot of people who are like, have you ever heard anything about this prof? I'm like, yep, yeah, they're not, they're not friendly to Indigenous people, right? So, I mean, um, when I went to, like, I graduated high school in 94. 
So we didn't even have like native centers and stuff like that. So the Aniscom Center, you know, it's such a great resource for people, um, you know, and I, I'm really happy all the universities now have some sort of like indigenous friendly center. It usually has like, I don't know, Bannock and sometimes even an elder. And um, so I think that that's a good support. And uh, so when I hear Mount Royal students talk about, yeah, no, it's good. It's like, yeah, I know that's an Iscom Center is good. It, it's really helpful. So I it like is. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, oh, go I ahead. Just, I just want to kind of go back. I won't say any names, but when you're talking about props, so um, in my policy studies class, they wanted us to make a policy, um, just a social policy, whatever we wanted to do. And so I looked into the Mount Royal um, Indigenous Strategic Plan, and I kind of got some ideas from there. And so my policy was um, for Mount Royal that anybody that graduates from Mount Royal with a degree, they need to do two Indigenous Studies courses. Like those are mandatory to get your degree. So one would be like an Indigenous Histories course, and then the other one would be like a, a contemporary Indigenous course. And so I sent my first draft into my prof, and she's like, "Yeah, that's great, but you need to find somebody that would, would." Um, not agree with this, like do some research and find somebody that would oppose this policy. And I'm thinking, who, who would oppose this policy? Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. So anyways, I think she knew where she was sending me or she knew that there was somebody out there that opposed the policy. So I started doing some research and there was a professor at Mount Royal who was and is against the indigenous strategic plan. And I read one of her articles and it was just grossly racist saying how um, you can't expect us to have a certain amount of Indigenous students because they're, um, they don't have the education or they're not as smart as everybody else and just the things. And I was so like appalled. I went to see one of my other profs who's kind of like, she's been like my mentor. I talk to her about everything. And I'm like, oh my God, like, like this article, like this is a professor at a school where I go, like, how is this okay? And like, how did I not even know about this? And she, she heard my concerns, but she was like, I apologize, Bri, but unfortunately kind of falls under like free speech and like not saying it doesn't matter, but kind of don't waste your energy on it. And I was like, and it bugged me, but I took her advice and I decided not to waste my energy on it on, there was nothing I could really do. I was, but I was still appalled. And then, and then the same professor kind of hit the news during the Black Lives Matter movement and that some of the things she was saying and I, and you know, and she's still a professor at Mount Royal. I know, and it, it's really awful. And the U of uh, C had that, uh, what was his name? He was a total jerk and he was, uh, Tom Flanagan. He's oh. racist. He's oh, really racist. Never yeah, he finally I'll look, got- I'll he, look him up after. <laughs> he's old, so he retired. Um, he was part of Harper's team and um, he's the one who always kind of says really awful racist things about indigenous people to justify colonization. So, um, and he was like the mainstream prof that most Canadians like used and cited his work, oh, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah, no, he has created so much damage that there are people who um, are students and all they ever do is uh, refute his work and every single piece that he ever put out. So I think it's really an embarrassment to the UFC, um, you know, but I mean, they're out there and people seem to think racism is okay here. I mean, fundamentally it's what, Canada was built on was that white supremacist racist. So yes. it makes sense that the academics who and, and the institutions like they just won't change right because in order to perpetuate that narrative. 
Yeah, I don't know if you know, but um, John A. McDonald's statue is going to go up here in Calgary in August. What? Yeah. The one they took down in Montreal and Jason Kenney's telling <clears throat> them to bring that one over here? Well, it's a new one. It's commissioned in Edmonton. So there's a Edmonton um, artist making it. Yep. They made a, a foundation like a John A. McDonald foundation in order to per perpetuate his racism. And that's like, it's like just because you're not registered as the KKK doesn't mean you're not absolutely affiliated with every single belief that they had. And that was what John A. Mc McDonald was all about was, you know, white supremacy and, and that and we have a whole committee that's dedicated to fundraising and creating this statue. And I, I want to say it's his birthday or something that they're going to, you know, unveil this statue. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's something else, I guess, <laughs> we'll be fighting against. Like, I know. Um, I actually tonight. Is we it have... going on public land? Is it going on private land? What is like, who, how is this even being allowed or but again, that's why I have this podcast, because I, I can't believe none of the mainstream media is willing to talk about how upsetting it is to the Indigenous community. And you know what they're doing right now is they're going through the Indigenous community, finding the one elder that's like, yeah, it's no big deal. Yeah, what's the big deal? And that's the one they're going to find. And that's the one they're going to put on TV and say, yeah, it's fine. Just like they justified the Beaufort Towers, just like they justify Langevin School. You know, it's incredible. So speaking of which, um, initiative that we have here is that there were, I was approached by three settler kids, really sweet kids, and they wanted to um, do the name change of Langevin School. So for folks who are like listening for the first time, Langevin is um, one of John A. Macdonald's um, uh, henchmen, founders of Canada, that uh, is the architect of Indian Residential School. And here in Calgary, we had a bridge uh, named after him and we still have a school named after him so uh, and the worst part is it's a science school so here's a you know my daughter she's indigenous she wants to be a marine biologist I can never send her to Langevin school how could I ever send her to Langevin school like our family is healing from the Fort Providence Sacred Heart Indian Residential School uh, how could I possibly send her to a Langevin school so Anyway, a lot of settlers are obviously in charge of the narrative. My own uh, school trustee, when I tried to talk to her when I ran, she clearly did not care about racism. She felt because she lives in the Northeast, she can't possibly be racist, mm -hmm. meaning she's really like unaware of, of the real deal here. So I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping to support these three kids because um, they were concerned about speaking for Indigenous. Mm -hmm. So what I've been collecting are um, like letters from the Indigenous community so that they feel supported, but also so that we can showcase that Langevin school name change is a significant issue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the CBE just came out with a report that said, oh, we're failing kids. And it's like, yeah, shocking. Um, well, <laughs> you know, let, let me break down all the reasons why for you. Um, so, you know, and this is just one piece of that one component of it. So. <clears throat> Anyway, if you want to uh, write a letter, I'll happily take that letter so that we can show it to this uh, CBE, but also the kids, because they were worried about not having community support. Because once again, the CBE went to the one elder that was like, eh, it's not a big deal. And it's like, okay, well, so now like my kid can't go to that school. And how many other kids don't even understand the gravity of, you know, reconciliation in Indian residential schools. And they're still going to this stupid school. 
So um, and I just wanted to throw that out because if you want to be a part of our committee, which I'm sure you have way too much on your plate. No, and no, I, I do have a lot on my plate, but I'm always I'm always down for the cause. And I remember when they changed the land of Inbridge, no knowledge of them be, there being a school. So yes, I will write a letter. For sure, I will write a letter. Awesome. And I yeah. think it's, it's, it's very beneficial to have um, um, the settler kids involved and to know the gravity of the name. I think it's great to, we're thankfully coming up on a new generation. Hopefully it's going to be a little bit different as we start to get older and the younger ones start to to take over <laughs> yeah hopefully hopefully yeah. yeah i'm 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 hopeful i'm nervous though that uh because you know like stephen harper's son automatically gets some sweet paid gig while he's going to university um you know when he's not even in the province and i it just it, it's shocking to me how the settler narrative continues yeah. and continues and continues and they're okay with failing indigenous kids um you know it's just so unacceptable so what was uh, school for, like, um, I guess, grade one to 12 for you? What was that like? Um, so Fort Smith is 50% uh, Indigenous, maybe even 51 where I grew up. So, there, you know, there's a lot of Indigenous kids. But I will tell you the same thing as I think most schools where we don't learn the true history of the lands that we're on. We don't learn the true history of how Canada was formed. Even though I am a daughter of a residential school survivor, residential schools were never discussed in my household, never once. They were never discussed in school when I was growing up. Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it, but I think like a lot of people, I was under the impression that Christopher Columbus discovered these lands until I was like in my twenties. I'm like, it's true. That's what was forced on me through the education system, um, only through my own research, through my own kind of being nosy. Um, when the, the TRC kind of started happening, I was like, oh gosh, like, I wonder if my mom went to residential school. And I remember my mom, the names of the school she talked about when it so did my own research to find out, yeah, my mom is a residential school survivor. It was just never talked about. And I don't, uh, I don't blame her, I guess, for not wanting to talk about it. I think that's kind of how it is for a lot of people. Our family, for sure. Yeah, yeah. our, um, like, so I knew my granny went to school for, like, she was there um, when she was 18 months old, and she left when she was 18 years old. And she came out with a grade nine education. And I didn't understand that. I'm like, why don't, why didn't she have a grade 12 at the least? And I, I, you know, just didn't understand. And, um, but of course the way mainstream media per, you know, perpetuates negative, you know, stereotypes of indigenous people and between some of the racist stuff I would hear, I just assumed my granny was kind of dumb and just didn't, didn't do well. Not until the TRC did I understand the gravity of what, why you know, they only gave her grade nine because that was it. That was as high as they taught. And I didn't understand the being stripped of your culture, being stripped of your language. I didn't understand any of that, right? So yeah, you're not alone. We certainly didn't talk about it until we went to the Edmonton TRC. I want to say that was what, 2013, 10, 12? I can't remember. And, um, and it was funny, when I first approached my mom, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to come up to Edmonton for this like four day conference. And she's like, okay. And uh, so I'm like, oh, okay. So I made arrangements to stay at a friend's. 
And then all of a sudden, when they realized there was like, you know, 20,000 natives coming to this thing, they're like, oh, we're going too. So then we ended up going around with my granny and my mom. And my I brought my daughter with me, of course. So um, she got to be a part of that and see it. And uh, it there was uh, like, like it was um, a lot harder on my heart than I thought it was going to be um, because I didn't understand the gravity until I really got there. And I mean, like everybody was there with their parents and um, I was just, you know, horrified. You know, we they started the, doing some of the speech or not speeches, um, testimonies here in Calgary. They had a small gathering and I went to that in a hotel and got to hear the stories from the elders locally. And I was just like, holy, I like it was it was awful and, and i knew it was bad um around i don't know 2011 but like hearing the stories firsthand was pretty pretty awful so anyway yeah. from that though i think so much truth has come out and mm -hmm. uh there's a lot of um you know now unpacking as a result of that and now that the secret's out in the open you know you're hearing more and more stories that are coming out so yeah it's been uh quite the journey for us to try to unlearn a lot of that uh you know grade one to 12 for us as well um my daughter was uh struggling um, a lot with the non-indigenous teaching indigenous history and then dismissing her as she spoke um they wouldn't recognize what two-spirit was and, you know, they, she heard um, homophobic slurs in the hallways. And uh, you're not going to believe this, but she laid tobacco down and asked that she no longer go to school. And then the pandemic happened and they shut down the school within a week. So I'm like, okay, it took a pandemic <laughs> for me to get the clue. You don't want to go back to these non-Indigenous schools. So mm -hmm. we started a homeschooling um uh, there's a there's boards of homeschoolers here in in Alberta so that's what we started to do in order to you know keep her motivated to continue some type of schooling and um blue quills i think is the you know university she wants to go to so once she qualifies to be able to go to that that's what we'll focus on because um you know you and i have to unlearn all of that stuff we learn from grade 1 to 12 yeah she doesn't have to now, right? She's yeah. she doesn't have to learn all these lies that they teach. No, and so, to be away from the harm. I mean, it just sounds harmful. It is. It's not a safe place for indigenous girls and uh, you know, and, and little two spirits too. And that's really problematic because they're our most at risk group. Man, I'm straight cis, able bodied, and I feel alone. I can't imagine, you know, what it's like for others so who don't have that support um worse ha who have barriers that are trying to stop any support from happening so um you said your daughter was going off to vancouver does that mean that she's like in college or university yeah she she started her school on january 18th um she's an esthetician school so she's going to be doing the beauty the nails so she she would she had already started her own business here in calgary she was doing eyelashes um, she did my eyelashes a couple times she's really good at it but she wants to kind of expand and do the nails and the facials and eventually have her own business so she's in vancouver going to school for that right now oh that's awesome yeah um canada learning bond is something that i've been trying to promote but that's for kids that are born 2004 
and since. So like that's a pretty small demographic of people. Yeah. <laughs> but they're coming of age now, right? So we're trying to encourage parents and aunties and grandmas to to you know get that um, RESP um, for kids, and then that way if they go into that type of school, any types of trades, anything, they have at least have some money. So. Um, have you heard what's it like doing um, that type of schooling in a pandemic because like I as soon as the pandemic happened I quit getting my nails done Are are they struggling with that so great so the first uh, part of her schooling is um, theory so they're doing the books reading the books and stuff like that but they are actually going to be in a classroom um, doing hands-on work when that part of school comes so it hasn't come yet because they're just reading books and doing tests and, and those kind of things. And all of that is online. Um, but when when the hands-on learning comes, they say that they will be um, in the classroom. So I equipped her with a bunch of masks and, you know, hopefully they can they stay safe. Yeah, your masks are beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I've been seeing them. I want to buy some. Uh, we go down to the um, uh, White Eagle Craft Store at Sutina. So they have some and, and we, that's where we've been getting them. But I know I need to make an order with you because I want to promote them. And uh, well, they're really beautiful. Everybody buys them. But then the other thing is, too, if you're a student, I don't want to be burdening you with more orders. So <laughs> I don't take orders. I yeah, uh, during the summer, I had a lot of time on my hands. Um, I was doing a lot of healing, too, which like my sewing definitely helped me through that. And so I was restocking my website usually every Saturday. Um, now, because school has started, I don't sew as much. So I restock every second Saturday. So I don't take orders as much. Um, I did kind of do one one bigger order from uh, a man from Sixica. He asked me to um, make certain masks with buffaloes and owls. And I, I just couldn't say no. I was like, of course. And so I ordered the material and made it. But usually I just restock my website and then so I don't have to worry about orders. Awesome. Well, I will look on your website and get whatever might be on there and go from there <laughs> because yeah, I, I love to support local. And right behind you, you have um, one of our local artists, Sam. Yeah, we have a couple of his pieces, but it's not that big. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like getting that from Sam? Oh, it was beautiful. It was really so like I, I mentioned earlier, I discovered his art at uh, Moonstone Creations. I bought a few pieces for my dad for Christmas. And um, that's when when Nathaniel was alive. He's like, I want a big piece for our living room. And and so we just went on Facebook and, and searched him up and said, like, what what will it take to commission a piece? Um, like the creativity is all yours we would just like the seven sacred teachings because that those were the pieces that I bought for my dad and he said yeah sure come pick me up and so we picked him up and we went to um, Michael's and we bought him all the all the stuff that he needed and dropped him off and gave him a down payment and just said you know call us when when it's done and um, about a week later he called and 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 that was it and he was feeling a little bit bad he said I made a mistake I, I dropped um, paint and I'm like looking, I'm like, I don't see where it is. He's like, but I fixed it up. So I, like, I don't know, it could be one part where I, he might've did it or it could be a different part. I don't know. It just looks like it's the the, the painting. And so like, I love it. It's yeah, I know he's, he's so great and he's so humble. 
we have a couple of his pieces. I should put them behind me, um, actually. But no, I don't because I I want them in the living room. <laughs> oh, everybody can see them. I'm sitting in my living room right now on my laptop. My computer desk is in my kitchen, but I'm like, they, I don't want to have cupboards as my background. So <laughs> yeah, no, that that is such a beautiful background, and I oh, I'm so grateful. So do you? Um, I I don't think this will be one of the first episodes that I have since um, Amy Willier has passed away from uh, Moonstone. And you had mentioned Moonstone, and I, I think that I, I would be re really remiss to not mention that. Um, you know, man, I, I've actually been really affected in the sense that I didn't. She's younger than I am. Yeah. Yeah, and she has even I would argue more going for her right now, and uh, so it was a really hard blow to the community, and everybody knew her and loved her. And uh, did you have a relationship with her for selling I your wares? No, I did not know her personally. I've stopped in Moonstone Creations many, many times. She was always wonderful, lovely, kind, welcoming, offering water, coffee, tea. Um, and so, no, I didn't know her personally, but she was a very big staple in the Indigenous arts community here throughout Canada. She would always explain the different arts that she was selling. You know, she even had Inuit artists in her store from like Takoyakdak and, you know, it was really beautiful. I, it was very shocking. Just a few days before I heard about her passing, I was watching a video of her on, on Facebook and her just, you know, talking about um, some of the, the wares that people buy and the blankets that aren't actually Indigenous made and, you know, how they're, they're mass produced. And she's mentioning how, you know, if she, she could sell them if she wanted to, because they're very, very popular in the Native community. I'm guilty. I own a sheet set that is, has the Native, um, prints on it right and she just said it's they're not native made and how it she could profit if she wants but she doesn't and just putting that awareness out you know that a lot of the blankets and the sheets and the it a lot of them aren't native made and so there are actual indigenous owned businesses that do sell that stuff that, it, that are indigenous made and I was really affected by watching that video I was like yeah you know because I I am guilty of owning a sheet set I've looked at blankets in stores where I'm like oh that's a beautiful blanket and now I, I'll never, I'll never purchase them again, just, you know, knowing better. Um, but yeah, and then a couple of days later, I, I heard and I was just, it was just shocking and it's sad. And she was really um, a very prominent member of the Indigenous arts community here in Calgary, for sure. Yeah, um, she definitely uh, set up a lot of the vendor type opportunities as well. So yeah. like, I know, like, we're all trying to just figure out what, life without Amy looks like but it's really hard to imagine right now and um and I can't that's for sure um so the group I work with they had a really close relationship with her um and we were promoting some of her films actually um through the uh film festival circuits as well her and her son put out one so you know um my boss really close to the family and you know just trying to support them the best they can through it and hopefully as as her her son grows that we can still you know harness his skills with filmmaking and you know promote the way he's meant to and Yvonne is um Amy's mom and uh, co-owner of Moonstone so you know we're definitely just going to keep them in in our thoughts and um and she she had also my understanding was had adopted like a niece and nephew as well so she's, yeah, she had um, a huge household there. 
and uh, they're just trying to figure out all of those things. So, you know, my thoughts and prayers are with them as they try to navigate this world. And, you know, hopefully we help them in the best way we can too. And um, for anybody listening, when Moonstone reopens, obviously we'll be supporting them as best we can too, because um, yeah, well, that's where we, we go a lot for my family. Like um, every Christmas, that's where we always end up doing Christmas shopping and, and such as well. Um, my last poppy that I bought was actually in a Nook one with Silkskin. Um, and she, she got them and I was like, oh, I have to buy one. I didn't yeah. need it, but I had to. <laughs> you, you never have to worry about the art over there being authentically indigenous. Go to Moonstone Creation, you will get authentic indigenous art. You'll never have to question about where it came from. That's, you know, I loved shopping there too. Christmas presents, I was, I was always there. So yeah, yeah, no, that's my place to go, man. So yeah, I um I think it's really incredible the artwork that you're doing and obviously, you know, a big part of our, our community. Um, yeah, so what are, are there any other things that you'd like to share with us today as we kind of get to know each other? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, oh, it's hard for me to talk about. So um in the summer, my husband was murdered. Um we weren't together when it happened. We had already separated. Um, unfortunately, he fell back into addiction. Um, it didn't last long. He was about two months, and then and then um, and then he was missing for five days. Um, we we would just talk sporadically when we weren't together. So I had no idea that he was missing until the cops came to my house on June twenty eighth. And, and and they didn't tell me why they were here at first. I was like, they're like, is Nathaniel Goodeye here? And I was like, no, he hasn't been here in a couple months. Like, um, and they're like, oh, okay. And I was like, well, why are you looking for him? I thought maybe he like got into trouble or something, you know, cause I, I know that he was using. And they're like, oh, well, his mom reported him missing. And I was like, oh my God. And they left. And so I called his mom and she said, yeah, he's been missing for five or six days. And um, I said, okay, well, next time you go talk to the, the police, can I come with you? And she said, yeah, I have a meeting with them tomorrow morning. And I said, okay. And so we were supposed to go to, um, I think one of the Westbrook's police stations the next morning, but the cop had called the last minute and said, go to the, the main headquarters. And uh which is kind of, I think, by McKnight Boulevard. And so we went there and, and they found his body in a house. They arrested three people in that house. Um, within 24 hours, they released those three people. And there still hasn't been charges. And so I went to a sweat a while back and, and it was really helpful because the elder said to me, he said, don't, um, don't depend on the colonial justice system. Creator will take care of it. And so I've been like living by that because before I would get really mad, like I'd watch the news and I'd be like, there's justice for everybody else. Like you'd see something and it would kind of like relate to Nathaniel's case and then somebody would be charged and I would get upset. And, but I still feel like he deserves justice. Um, 
when it first happened, the cops were like six weeks, six weeks, we'll just need some DNA testing. Um, it's been over six months. He was, the last time he was seen alive was on June 23rd by his mom. He went to a house and he was murdered that day. So he was in that house for five days before he was found. There were people in that house, like doing drugs, partying around. They knew his body was in there. Um, and they arrested people and they just let them go. I told the, the lead investigator right away. I said, I, I already feel like it's not gonna matter as much because he's an indigenous man. Um, he does have a criminal record. Um, he, I mean, he was sober for four years before he fell off the wagon again. So, you know, I said, he's a, a, a drug addict or he uses drugs. I just feel like it's gonna be put on the back burner and it's not gonna matter as much. And, and I feel like that's where we are. I feel like if that was a, a white man in that house who had been in the house for five days deceased and there were people in that house with him knowing he was deceased and they were arrested they definitely wouldn't be let back out on the street but they were it's been over six months um and and they keep saying yes it's gonna happen yes charges are gonna come like i said earlier i quit like that's not where at the beginning i was mad i was angry and i like i would be like if people are in charge like we won't get closure i don't hold that anymore i I'm listening to what the elder said, like, we can't depend on that. But still, he's a human being. He didn't deserve for that to happen to him. And he deserves justice. And so it has been really hard. They, the lead investigator just kind of keeps giving us the runaround, right? Like, first, it was six weeks. And then it was October. And then it was November. And then another couple months. And after I went to the sweat, um, I stopped contacting the investigator. So the only updates I get now are from Nathaniel's mom because there's just like a lot of energy. You know, I would message every couple of weeks and it was like a lot of energy. And so I do know that they got the first round of DNA back and that was all it was supposed to be. But now all of a sudden it's like they need another round of DNA, which I mean, I just feel, you know, like obviously the justice system wasn't built for us it was built against us <laughs> yeah um, but i do hope that there is uh, justice like like he deserves it um not because of the police but because of somebody who messaged me on facebook i know the name of the person who owned the house that he was found in um somebody messaged it to me on facebook and so i i messaged the police and i said like, do you have this name? Somebody gave me this name. And they're like, yeah, we know who that is. And we're investigating his involvement in Nathaniel's death. You know, so they know who did it. And we're just waiting and waiting. Um, I guess the person who did it is in jail on different charges that have nothing to do with Nathaniel. Um, I did talk to the investigator a couple weeks ago because I, I was watching the news and a family was offering a reward. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's like an option if, you know, if in the future I wanted to like fundraise or, or put money together, if we can offer a reward for information, because it was more than one person that was involved. Um, 
So I did message the lead investigator and he did reassure me. He said, I don't think we're going to need to go that first. He was like, Bri, I can't tell you what to do. I can't say yes. I can't say no. If that's the route you want to go, I, I can't, it's not up to me. But at this point, I don't think that's the route we're going to need to take. And so I said, okay. And so I was talking to my family because my family has been very supportive and helpful through all of this. And I said, if by the one year mark, um, we don't have any answers, then maybe that's something I'll look into. So, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for your loss and I'm sorry that you're going through this. Um, you know, I, I wish you were alone in this that, you know, oh, this has never happened before. Um, I'm in the community of Colton Crowshoe. His family does not have justice. Um, you know, our um, Valentine's Day marches are usually for women, but it's that bigger picture of families of loss for Indigenous people in general, and it's not okay, and I'm sorry. Um, you know, Jackie Crazy Bull's story, it, I, I don't understand how more settlers aren't upset that we have such obvious injustice and unequal injustice. And we have like reports and reports of it, but we don't implement them. And they magically always sound, you know, shocked and amazed whenever we talk about racism. And it's like, this is every freaking day, mm -hmm. every day, every day. And um, I hate it. And I'm sorry that, I'm sorry for your loss of Nathaniel. I'm yeah. sorry for Nathaniel's entire family. Um, good. So uh, would that be Sixica? Are they from Sixica? No, he's from Erminskin. Okay. Okay. So Oscar's more case. Cree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good eye. Oh. Yeah. Yep. And gotcha. like to, to kind of speak, because he, he is such a good man. He did have a really hard life though. Like, um, so like the the racism and all the systems like affected his life unfortunately like when he was growing up he moved around a lot as a young boy and so in elementary school in grade one and grade two like instead of his teachers taking the time with him and and helping him they just pushed him to the the next grade to not have to deal with him right and so grade one was like a loss for him grade two and then so by the time he got to grade four he realized that he couldn't read because his teachers just kept passing him to the next grade instead of taking time with him that he was like embarrassed and he's like f this i don't i don't even want to go to school anymore because imagine being a young boy in grade four and not knowing how to read right so again like the teachers were just like this another native kid put him up the grades put him up the grades so then he he didn't go to school at grade four he just would walk in the front door like he was going to school and he would walk out the back door yeah. and then so that kind of led him down a life of you know hurt and crime and drug use and so then when he was doing his penitentiary bit he was in solitary confinement for four years straight and so now there's a lawsuit about that and the effects that has had on inmates but the the lawsuit came after he'd already passed but i've been kind of like looking into it like i wonder if he if he would qualify and i wonder how they're doing that with people who who have passed on already because they say like it like mentally did things to inmates and when he was in the edmonton max like for years and years and years he was in 
23 and a half hour lockup for years and years and years. And when I met him, he's like, yeah, that those things change people, right? Like that those kind of situations change people. So yeah, he was, he was failed by a lot of systems. Oh my goodness. Um, Even he was doing drugs. He was trying to get into treatment like the, where, when he fell off and, um, some of the messages he was like asking to get into detox and asking people to drive him to detox and there wasn't enough beds, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I'm so grateful you highlighted all those issues. Um, uh, Tank Standing Buffalo, he's a, a black indigenous artist here. He does like animation and his movie Reckless was actually literally about this, uh, literally about, um, his stint of solitary confinement. And he was the one who educated me about um, it being against the Geneva Convention and that it's a form of torture. And, you know, Canada violates this all the time with Indigenous people. And yet Canadians seem to be a-okay with that. And that's the problem, right? Like we need immediate change on the on the justice system and it would save them in the long run. And I, for some reason with Canada, unless you sue them and, you know, win in court, only then do they acknowledge it, but then they still don't make system changes. No. And I, so I, I can't like wrap my head around how people are one proud to be Canadian, but two, why they can't see this is a genocide. Cause that's what this is. Like to me, Nathaniel was lost. He was murdered because of, you know, governmental policy that's led us to this point. Yeah. And I, so to me, when I hear that, I, it's just it's incredible to me that people are okay with this it was an article that came out yesterday um it was written by a maori writer and she wrote, wrote about being in canada for two years and how like she cannot it changed her permanently the racism that we experience here and that everybody is okay with and you know i've been trying so hard to make changes but it, it's i'm i think i'm done trying to talk to white people about it they don't <laughs> want a they don't want to change it they yeah. they like i have i can tell you i have had the same white people say to me i just don't know what to do <laughs> 10 years of me giving them solutions 10 years of me giving them free education i just don't know what to do yeah i always clearly say listening to indigenous women is not one on your priority yeah so, yeah it's always easier for them to just kind of maintain in their in their comfortable little bubble like this stuff isn't happening right it's and then to like have to really dig in it it makes them so uncomfortable so I mean you do most of your learning when you're uncomfortable they say but I think that's what it is right to, to step outside that comfortability and to really dig deep into what's really happening in Canada it, it scares people, but it needs to happen. It needs to happen. It has to happen. And I don't know. Um, I, I don't even know what the right answers are anymore. You know, really thought <laughs> I was raised white. So I thought, you know, you make your lifelong goals, you make your 50 year goal, your 20 year goal, your 10 year goal, and, and you follow that. And everything has turned upside down on its head for me. Because um, there's absolutely nothing about this country that I can understand why everybody's okay with I like I can't wrap my head around it at all and um you know and I've watched folks try to help our Indian residential school survivors who are homeless on the streets and purposefully you know not give them shelter 
when it's this weekend's going to be minus 30 something or other and we're in the middle of a pandemic yeah i i cannot wrap my head around how any politician sleeps at night in this country can't wrap my head around it they are the ones in the power to do it yeah oh yeah absolutely and then we still got the the people that are like well it's their own fault it's their own fault no 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 it's the fault of the system it's the the fault of this country being built the way that it was built and the things that happened as this country canada was being built like you know what i mean it that's i was a drug addict for a lot of years of my life right Mm -hmm. and i was angry i was i was mad at the world i didn't understand why my mom was an alcoholic i was mad again i said we didn't talk about residential school in my household so um when i was 21 i moved to the city and i started doing drugs and i was there for like 10 years of my life i first learned the very very first time i heard about residential schools was the first time i went to treatment and let me tell you that changed my life i was like residential schools like maybe that's why my mom is an alcoholic right it's not her fault it's not my fault like the guilt and the shame like and so I, that first stint in treatment didn't work. I went back to using drugs, but that was like where my my recovery really started because it it just made me realize that like like the deck was stacked against me from from a young age. It isn't my mom's fault. She's an alcoholic. I don't know what my mom went through at residential school. She'll never tell me, and that's that's okay with me. I I can't force her to tell me. My dad did mention a few things, like not very significant things but yes significant things like when my mom went to residential school she was left-handed they forced her to be right-handed which like I don't understand why right so and like my whole life I knew my mom was ambidextrous she can write with both hands but not knowing that was like a part of trauma for her um yeah so I you know learning about the things really changed my life but it it wasn't 100% my fault. Sure, I made choices and bad choices as an adult, but I didn't have the tools not to make those choices. Why? Because my mom didn't have those tools. Why? Because she was raised in a residential school. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I um I hear you 100% and I you know, I remember being ashamed of who I was for most of my life um and denying my indigeneity. Um but when I the same as you understood the gravity of Indian residential schools and then I started to unpack other policies that had been on people my our people I was like well I actually have that like deep deep rooted pride I'm not supposed to be here you're not supposed to be here we're not supposed to be here talking to each other but I have lost an uncle you have lost a husband we have lost um children as a result of all of this unresolved healing and you know we have we had don't have mental health services that are culturally appropriate. We don't talk about trauma informed uh, practices. Um, my husband and I we were really lucky to be sponsored to do the Wellbriety through the um, uh, White Bison Society, and that talks about addiction and talks about trauma and the indigenous um, policies that were imposed on our people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a an organization here that did does. Um, families in with elders and the kids learn fun stuff like hand games and and their culture and the adults we unpack all of our trauma and Mm -hmm. and unpack that 
the policies that were completely oblivious to me. I had no idea. I had no idea when I heard about, um, so the McMurray Métis and Moccasin Flats, I was in Fort McMurray in 91 or in 81 and 82 when this was happening to them. And they were labeled squatters and their their places were like burnt down in front of them. It, it, it's incredible to me that people have the audacity to talk about ethical oil in this country. And it, like, I, I cannot wrap my head around it. Like you have any idea what at what expense your profits are coming from all the mining, all of the extraction of oil and gas. Like it, um, our area, that's where the diamond mines are and the uh, uranium mines. Yeah. And look at all the harm that has come from all of that. Um, the water is uh, a poison now in Yellowknife. And the uranium mines created the Hiroshima and the uh, Nagasaki bombs. So now our people, the Dene, go there and, you know, recognize that trauma that came from the mining there. And the Canadian government never fully um, compensated all of the natives that died mining uranium in unsafe working conditions. Like, there's so many problems in this country and people are more concerned about a hockey game or a Super Bowl <laughs> than they are about what we're talking about. So yeah, I exactly. that was part of the reason the impetus, my, my husband actually, he was like, Michelle, you shoved a mic in front of me and he was like, just start talking. Because people don't know, they don't get it. They don't yeah. understand what our, our living life is like because of, of policies that were imposed on us. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I tried to run for politics to try to create change, but it's run by white people for white people and white people are the majority vote. So yeah. there's no winning in the system, you know, and even the people who put forward policy, they don't really want to hear our voices and really want to institute the changes. They just want to tokenize us mm -hmm. and say, oh, no, we have a native at the table one time. It's not enough reconciliation, anymore. right? It's, but it's not. It's not. That's just the buzzword because, again, there's so much that can be done just with the, you know, with the sign of a pen. If and, and they don't, right? It's just they they want us to believe that we're on this path of reconciliation. We just have so much farther to go. Also, to go back to those diamond mines because, again, I was raised in the Northwest Territories it desecrated the land but it's also caused so much um harm to to the people so when i was growing up there wasn't um a whole lot of drugs in the northwest territories there was drugs and you can get your hands on cocaine every once in a while but it was not flooded with drugs the way it is today because of those diamond mines in northwest territories is so flooded with crack cocaine and crystal meth and fentanyl and down because people go into the mines for two weeks they come out for two weeks and and then that's two weeks of like partying and stuff and so in the last 20 25 years it, it's just been like flooded 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 with drug use and again a lot of it can be attributed back to those diamond mines right and then combined with indian residential schools man camps male toxicity like there's so many problems there and again I see bumper stickers everywhere that I live, you know, I love oil and gas, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird being in a city where it's like, this is my reality, right? So where people are 
are really struggling with addiction from all of these problems that were imposed on our people so that they could steal the land, steal the resources and profit off of it. It's incredible to me how people sleep at night, you know, and their bigger concern is, well, you know, Tim Hortons is closing, so I guess I'll have to go to the Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> or to even deny that these things happen or to deny that the systems work against us. Uh, you know, we always hear, and I, this is something I always go back to too, that the system is broken. No, 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 the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way it was designed to work. And I think I heard that about two years ago and I, I always go back to that because it's true, right? When the, when the systems were built, they were built to oppress Indigenous peoples because they wanted the lands that we were on and they wanted to starve us out and take whatever they wanted and so the systems were built against us so no the systems are not broken the systems are working the way they were built to work yeah exactly no you're encapsulated it perfectly i am um, i appreciate that i want to keep talking um but uh, <laughs> we're already like so far and maybe if you have some things that um like if if there's a development in the case or if um you know his mom ever wants to be on here and you both be on here and talk about it like you're always welcome on the show when you're you know doing your schooling and there's something that comes up maybe some new project you're welcome to come back if you haven't you're launching something new on your on in your small business then by all means you're welcome back anytime to talk about any of these things and uh, anyway i can amplify your voice or your family's voice i will in a second and it's yes, funny go ahead sorry no, I, I appreciate you having me on here. I, I appreciate first time I've actually sat and talked about like Nathaniel's case and stuff. So it feels really good. Oh, I'm glad. And, you know, um, so we are both in Calgary and we don't like, you know, it's pandemics. So we can't see each other, see each other. But, you know, I want to see you and I want to meet you and, and have you in my backyard. And we have a fireplace and we can do that. But when you're comfortable, when you're ready and, and we'll figure out what that looks like as the pandemic is the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, once it's over. Yeah, it, that's like, I'm always at home. I don't, I don't leave my house very often. I go grocery shopping every now and then I go visit my sister, but you know, trying to, trying to be safe and, and follow the rules and not get sick. So. Yeah. I think that uh, people who understand the science are probably doing a lot more than what the recommendations are. And like, that's the way we are. We missed, um, you know, Christmas with my, my dad and my stepmom and my brothers and all that stuff too. So, you know, we're trying really hard to stay within the, uh, the bubble that we share with our, um, my husband, he does, um, addiction recovery podcasts. And then my daughter, she has a girlfriend who's and like her friend that she grew up with since like, you know, preschool. And, uh, those are, that's our bubble. That's it. Because yeah. Her mental health obviously matters a lot to me. And um, well, addiction recovery, like this, that needs support even through a pandemic. I would argue it needs more, but you know, our government, they don't, yeah. they certainly don't want to give culturally appropriate support either. So, you know, that's really problematic. A lot of these recovery, um, you know, programs are in churches and <laughs> it's like the church is literally the, the trauma source. Yeah. I you know. Say about that so my friend was in Edmonton she was in a long treatment center um I was giving her medicines and sage and stuff she's from Onion Lake she's she's native and I went to her graduation and and they brought her sage and there was a lot of like praying and stuff and like 
like Christian stuff. And I was like, you know, that's fine. I, I, I'm not against whatever helps somebody feel better, do better, um, be, live a better life. I am all for it. As long as they don't shove it down my throat, I'm fine. But when I was talking to her about it later, I said, like, do you guys ever go to sweat or, or smudge or do anything? And she's like, no, they didn't even want me to hold, hang a dream catcher in my room because, um, you're only allowed to believe in one God. And then, and when I, when I was there, it was like more than 50% indigenous women. And I was like, no. So anyways, those are things that are happening in treatment centers in, in Alberta right now. I try to tell people that, and I swear to God, it goes in one ear and out the other. Um, my, so my, my uncle, he was, uh, uh, he had a alcohol issue and he's been sober forever now, like over 20 years, I want to say even almost 30 years now. Anyway, he's an atheist and he had a hard time with that, you know, Christian um, belief system that's in a lot of the AA meetings and that. So, um, you know, it, anyway, that's why what led us on the White Bison Society, you know, doing that more culturally appropriate and they, um, you know, allow smudge um, medicine wheel teachings and uh, encourage medicine wheel teachings beyond like for each individual nation and their teachings for what, um, balance and spirituality looks like right so we don't want to try to negate and I mean I know um, Blackfoot uh, people here who were raised by Jewish people so they see uh, that Jewish faith as a part of who they are and you know I don't negate anybody's religion either I just can't believe that you know such a stigma is still attached to our spirituality and it's yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, I was a little floored by that but yeah um well we just had um, what is that Groundhog's Day? And I seen the funniest meme, and it was like, whoa, 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 whoa! So we're not allowed to have spirit animals, but you guys follow like a, a groundhog, like once a year, and that's that's like your thing. And I, I was laughing because I'm like, yeah, like it, it's so hypocritical what they tell us is wrong, but then what they do. So um, anyway, I I just really um, you know want to say, oh, mending broken hearts it, it really talks about the trauma. Uh, so that's a program that I run and we haven't been able to run it since the pandemic. Um, I know that we had one of our, one of the folks do it in one of the shelters, but that was a really controlled, uh, small group. And I don't even know if we could do it again with the new changes. I don't even know. So I don't know. It, it's really frustrating to me how, um, you know, they know what we need, refuse to give it to us. And now, here we are in a pandemic and who's most disproportionately affected by the pandemic people of color indigenous of course so anyway anyway um but yeah if you have good things coming up please tell me please come back on the show tell us and we'll promote it in the best way we can and um and then too if you um and and his family nathaniel's family decide that they're going to do any type of like vigils or whichever we will amplify your voices in the best way we can. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. And then hopefully you and I will stay, um, you know, in contact and chat some more about all of that stuff. And yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. I'm going to read my um, exit, but you are more than welcome to chime in because I think sometimes when people hear it from others, it helps a lot. And I kind of get tired of hearing myself anyway. So I annoy me. <laughs> um I'm proud this podcast has given solutions and included cultural training, uh, cultural first aid in almost all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people 
people of color, those with a disability and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Um, I want to say thank you to the authors of a wonderful paper I've been saying here to help.bc.ca Indigenous people, what is cultural safety and why I should care about it? Chelsea Ward um, or Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fridkin, they wrote this and their work are really cultural action tools. And I've said it over a hundred times in my podcast. So support Indigenous work as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to find it, highlight it and repeat it here. Um, internalized racism and lateral violence is a form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks um, experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. Uh, you heard us talk a bit about the Indian residential schools, but there are also the you know Indian Act and other land clearing policies, um, lack of services and such. So you can go to What is Internalized Racism by Donna Bevins to learn more about that, to unpack that so that you can be a proud person of whatever Indigenous heritage you have. It's I'm just lucky to have an Anuk on my show today, so grateful. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander interventions by the American Friends Service Committee. So these are things that you do if you see people being targeted on C train or something like that. And I've said that for over 100 episodes. So I just have a look, AFC or AFSC.org for do's and don'ts bystander intervention. Indigenous have been talking about issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions and public hearings, so it can be regularly disregarded, no more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their platforms and policies. If they don't recognize marginalized with their budget, with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, a lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities. Uh, we talked a little bit about the um, barriers of um, solitary confinement. Um, you know, Tank Standing Buffalo's film Reckless is winning in international film festivals because of this issue that we have in Canada that people just refuse to acknowledge. And I really want to take a moment to acknowledge um, Nathaniel's life affected by that. You know, demand that these politicians implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. The recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, that's been, been since 1996. So if you've been involved in politics since 1996, what the hell? Uh, multiple reports about child welfare reform, uh, violence prevention, now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry, on missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. Denying these reports is a form of abuse uh, called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational health justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. We have a provincial election happening here in Alberta. We're trying to find progressive candidates to run and we need them in the school trustee level all the way up because the school trustees are not changing the curriculum. The school trustees are not changing the names of these schools. School trustees are not <laughs> addressing racism. And these are the same thing with counselors, mayors. We need it all across the province. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, homophobia, they literally have zero business running. 
This should be understood by all parties, politicians, community organizations, sports clubs. Great article that I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. You know, there are resources out there. Uh, 21 things you may not know about the Indian Act. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about, want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can text them at hopeforwellness.ca. For more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 1-844-413-6649. It is toll free, 24 hours a day. And for non-Indigenous people, you can contact uh, Functioning 211 or usually 1-833-456-4566. Violence is an everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. As many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinions, but sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who know nothing about colonialism, the constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigil, our rights, microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, who are gatekeepers that survive off the status quo, or people who are in their trauma and they stop people from doing the good work and deplete the personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. And that's why I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard. I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian through her. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. I want to say thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, our father of our child, he's been my support down the red road and has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. To our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, I'm honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. My hope is my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to pres uh, talk about these present day issues. Uh, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe, and you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end with a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>